Uh, Jennifer and Jody, hello again and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to, if I may, just start with a very brief uh, couple of points about the nature of the book and then we will dive into some questions from both myself and I hope the audience members. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but a few things I think you should know about this novel up front. One is that it is a story that questions how much of the past we are obliged to carry with us into the future and how much we're allowed to let stay in the past. Two, this is a novel that dwells on the concept of identity and how we construct it both for ourselves and for others in our lives. And three is that the authors have already indicated they fully expect that this book is going to be banned in at least some American school districts. That is something we're definitely going to talk about over the course of this half hour. But before we get through there uh, to that, let's talk a little bit about the process of writing it. Jennifer, if I may start with you, I'm going to start with you because I believe the very concept of this novel began with you and it literally came to you in a dream. Is that correct? Indeed. I was in my apartment in New York City and I had a dream that I was co-authoring a book with Jody Picot, which is funny because I, you know, I don't normally dream about writing. Normally, I dream about fighting a giant squid at the airport or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I woke up and, and I thought, that's very specific. So <laughs> I got a cup of coffee, sat down and did my morning routine, which eventually landed me on Twitter, where I tweeted out, I just dreamed I was co-authoring a book with at Jody Picot. And about 30 seconds later, Jody sent me a private message that said, what was this book about? And I explained that it was a book that had two voices, uh, a young woman who had been murdered. And the other voice was the mother of her boyfriend, who was suspected of, of the crime. And I told Jody just that. And she said, LOL, let's do it. <laughs> well, that was five years ago. We each had other projects to do, including the book of two ways for Jody. I was writing a memoir called Good Boy. And then eventually the pandemic hit, of course, and we had all the free time in the world. So mm. we got to work. And here we are today talking about the book that resulted called Mad Honey. So uh, the story intrigues me because here we have two acclaimed and accomplished authors, both of them with their own plentiful readership uh, and their own particular writing processes. And my understanding from what I've read about the two of you is that those processes are actually quite vastly different from one another. Jody, do you want to maybe chat to us a little bit about how you actually write a book together when one of you is a kind of a freebaser who likes to let things roll and see where the plot takes her, and the other one plots and plans to within an inch of her life, that one's you. How does it work in practice? Yeah. Um, it was a very interesting process because when you write a book alone, you don't really think about how you write. You just sit down, you do the work. But when you co-write a book, you do have to think about that. And, you know, like you mentioned, I am a plotter. Jenny is usually not a plotter. She's what is called a pantser in the industry, meaning she flies by the seat of her pants. But when you're writing what is effectively a murder mystery and a courtroom drama, you cannot get to the end of the book and go, I don't know who did it. You know, you <laughs> actually have to plan that out. Um, so for for me, it was really important to have an outline. And I was able to convince Jenny that we, we should have an outline. Um, also, there was the added wrinkle that, uh, as Jenny told you, there are two voices in this book. Yeah. 
and Olivia is the mom. And I mostly wrote Olivia's chapters. And Lily is the girl who's been murdered. And Jenny mostly wrote Lily's chapters, although we did each swap one chapter of the other's voice just because we thought it was a good writing practice to inhabit that character. And also because we wanted to give our readers a little puzzle to figure out. Um, And so, you know, Jenny has a character who by the end of act one is gone. So what do you do with that character if you want her voice? And I thought it would be really interesting if she could tell Lily's story backward in time. Yeah. Which again is another good reason to plot because nobody wants to do that with outline. <laughs> and the the last thing that we really had to do <clears throat> in terms of writing as a duo was make sure that when people read it, it didn't feel like two authors whose voices were fighting each other. And so the way that we we really made that happen was by editing each other's chapters very oh. heavily to the point where honestly it's hard for me to tell which lines I wrote and which lines Jenny wrote. Well, as a reader, I'm going to say the same thing, that I'm intrigued to hear you say you each went and swapped out one chapter as a puzzle. Um, I didn't really have a sense of this is one writer and the other chapter is definitely another writer. I I, I didn't see that distinction. So I'm going to have to go and read it a second time to try and spot now where where you swapped. I mean, on the surface, this is... um, as you said, it's the story of Lillian of Olivia as the main voices, but but essentially it's it's a story that has two mothers, both of young adult children, children they are trying to protect from from different things and the lengths that they will go to to keep those children safe. And I'm a mother of children of a similar age to the characters in this book, so I found that element of the, the extent of a mother's love and how far they'll go incredibly powerful reading this. I'm mindful of being very careful of not revealing too much plot without giving away spoilers. So, Jody, if I may, I'm going to bat this ball over to you and say, will you tell the audience as much as you want to about the storyline of this book? Oh, yeah, I got this one down. Okay, <laughs> so it's the story of Olivia McAfee. Olivia was in an abusive marriage And years ago, she took her son, Asher, and she left for a new start. Uh, When the book opens, years have passed. Olivia is now a beekeeper, and Asher is 18, and he is head over heels in love with the new girl in school, Lily, who has just moved to town with her mother because they really need a new start, too. And then Olivia gets a phone call uh, from Asher. Lily is dead, and Asher is being questioned by the police. And, you know, she begins to wonder with an abusive past of her own, whether the past really ever stays in the past or if it keeps repeating itself. Mm -hmm. To me, this is a book about just that, about um, how much of the past informs our present. It is also a book about how we reinvent ourselves and what identity is, and it is about gender as well. And for all of those reasons, Jenny was the perfect co-author. We have very lived, different lived experiences as women in this country, in America. And I knew that if we sat down to write a book about what it means to be a woman in America, we would be able to create something that had never been done before. Mm. Now, Jenny, let me bring you in here. Anybody who's Googled your name or read any of your previous books will know that you're a transgender activist. It's not going to come to uh, as any great surprise to them that there is a transgender character who plays a key role in this novel. And yet... Some people didn't do the Googling, weren't familiar with your previous work. And when I went and took a look at some of the early reviews online, I could see a couple. It was a very small percentage, but there were a few people saying, you should have told me that. Why didn't say something on the cover? I wouldn't have bought this book if I knew there was a transgender character. Um, 
I'm guessing, given the current climate in the US in particular, that wouldn't have surprised you. It must have disappointed you that the response was there. But but um, uh, to what extent did it? Well, th- there is a trans element in this novel. Maybe not what people were expecting. At least we hope it's not what people were expecting. Our desire was for our readers to fall in love with the characters. Uh, the two moms, Asher, Lily, the, some of their friends. Some of their friends you're not going to fall in love with. But we really wanted people to feel that these characters were people that they knew, people that they cared about, and that their hearts were opened to the very real experiences of all of these characters as individuals, as human beings who, like anybody else, are struggling and fighting to find their grace and their peace and their love, sometimes at um, at great cost to themselves. And so by the time you find out which of the characters might be the trans character or which, by the time you, by the time you learn that, you've already, we hope, fallen in love with them. And so there's a moment where you're going to have to stop and think, oh, wait, at least some characters, uh, readers are going to have to think, oh, wait, I, I thought that transgender people were something else, or yeah. I thought that I, you know, I've been taught not to like these people. So this is one of the things that fiction can do. A story can open your heart and allow you to walk around in the shoes of people who are really different from you and perhaps gain a little sympathy, a little understanding, a little kindness. And Pippa, if I can yeah. jump in for a second. Um, you know, as the cisgender half of this writing team, which means that I was born a certain gender and stayed that gender my whole life. Um, that's really the reason we wrote the book. It was for the few people. And I will reiterate the vast majority of the reviews instead are like, oh, my gosh, I never saw yeah. that coming. Yeah. But for the few people who are unsettled by this, that was the point of writing the book for me, because we in America in particular are having a uh, very unbalanced dialogue about trans people and trans issues in particular. And a lot of cisgender people, most cisgender people do not have the conversation or the vocabulary in order to have the conversation about what it really means to be trans. This book is meant to provide you with the tools to have a discussion and the tools for empathy as well. So the reality is that the people who said they wouldn't have bought that book probably needed the book more than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole point of the book is, as Jenny said, to remind people that when you hear in the news about trans issues, when you hear about swimmers and when you hear about bathrooms and when you hear about hormone therapy for children, we're not really talking about issues. We are talking about human beings, period. Jennifer, if I can come back to you, one of the questions that your transgender character grapples with in this book is the question of who they tell about who they used to be, not only from a sense of who they can trust with that information, but who they feel obliged to tell. And there is that wonderful moment where the character wonders, is this one fact about myself, the fact I'm going to have to keep on telling over and over and over again for the rest of my life? Um you know, where everything else about me becomes irrelevant um, from my past. Is this going to be with me always? I'm just interested to know if that is something that you've grappled with and at what point you, you have feelings about this. At what point the gender issue ceases to be a thing that needs to be spoken about? 
That's a really interesting question. I I went through transition over 20 years ago, so I've lived more than a third of my life on this side of the gender divide. And most of the time, I actually don't think about gender very much. Um, There are times when I'm put in difficult situations as a result of gender, but almost always it's a result of being female. It's very rarely the result of being trans. Um, Generally, I pass pretty well. Um, I can get I can get by in the world without necessarily everyone knowing everything about me, except that I'm also this public person and uh, I'm frequently in front of cameras and microphones. And then I'm talking about these very intimate parts of my past. Sometimes I wonder whether I am still transgender. In fact, is that a thing that I that I that I was having gone through transition? Is that done? Uh, And now I'm. Uh, senior citizen, <laughs> like any other woman my age. Um, so, I mean, and I could compare it to, I don't know, if you if you were raised Catholic, um, and let's say if you were raised as a serious Catholic, and then you left the church, is there a part of you that still identifies as Catholic, not, not maybe in terms of faith, but in terms of um, the way you were socialized? Um, and is that true of other religions? Um, if you... You know, if you, I know people in America, I know I have a couple friends in America who were born in Ireland and they speak in very distinct Irish accents, um, but they have green cards. They're, they're naturalized citizens of the United States. Um, are they, are they the same as any other American? Well, yes, they are, except like me, they have the trace of, you can tell there's a trace in their voice of the country in which they were born. And when I dream at night, sometimes I dream of the country where I was raised mm-hmm. as well, uh, the country of men. Although sometimes I dream I'm co-authoring a book with Jody Pico. <laughs> and so you never, know what's, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Do you feel a sense of pressure? You've mentioned the public platform um, and you have a voice that is you have a voice for stop, which so many trans people don't have at all. Uh, Yours is a very public and a very loud one and gives you the privilege of using it as you've done with this book. Do you feel a sense of responsibility coming with that, Jennifer? I guess I do. I I, I wish I didn't, but I do. There was a time when I felt like in the public eye, I always had to be like the, you know, the perfect emblematic trans spokeswoman. And I can't say... I've always been the perfect spokeswoman. There, there are things I've I've messed up. There are opinions I've changed over time, but I, you know, I I try to make the case that transgender people want nothing more than to be left alone, to be able to live our lives with um, peace and grace and whatever courage might be necessary to get through the day. Uh, you know, we don't, we're not here to make anybody unhappy. We're here just like anyone else to do what we feel we are designed to do by God or nature or whoever, mm-hmm. whoever is in charge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Jody said earlier, no human being is an issue. And I think that that's, it's a, it is a thing that we, we really kind of bear on our shoulders. And I've, I've felt it as a public spokesperson, but you can't, you can't be right about everything. I try, but um, experience has taught me to try to be humble and forgiving and of myself, not least. And, I, you know, also, it's important to point out that the role of an ally when it comes to any group that's marginalized is to educate themselves and others like them. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it is not on Jenny or anyone else who who is trans or was trans or however they want to identify. It's not on them to to teach us what their journey has been. It's on us to learn about it and to do better in understanding it. And it is our hope that this is a work of fiction that can allow for that. Mm. Having said that, Jody, you have also said that you expect that this is a work of fiction that is potentially going to end up on the list of banned books in some areas. As I asked that, has it happened yet? And I say that because uh, it it wouldn't be the first time a Jody Pickup novel had been on the banned list in some school districts. No, I'm actually currently, uh, my book 19 Minutes is currently banned in seven different districts in the U.S., uh, a whole bunch of different states. And um, right now, book banning has become uh, endemic. Um, It is really, it's really scary, actually, uh, because it's not, when a book is banned, it is not because it's bad writing. It is not because of anything except the fact that it presents a different point of view to the reader. It opens up a reader's eyes and it opens up a reader's heart and mind. And to some people, that is terrifying. If you can't control what your child reads, you can't control what your child becomes, right? It's also worth noting that um, the first step in a fascist playbook is to control what a country reads, which is yeah. why this is so dangerous. The, books. Uh, yeah. the books that are most often being banned right now in America are books by Black authors and books by LGBTQ authors. Uh, for that reason, I have no doubt that as soon as Florida figures out what our book is about, they will <laughs> they will ban it, um, you know, or Texas. That's where a lot of this seems to be going on. Uh, but it's also worth noting that it's happening in what would I would consider a particularly liberal state like Connecticut. Um, and that is because there is a very vocal minority that is yelling quite loudly. Mm. And it is up to everyone else in our country who does believe in free speech and the freedom to read to stand up to them and to say, if you want to control what you read or what your child reads, great. But you don't get to make that choice for me or my child. Just a sidebar message in from one of our Cape Talk audience on the Facebook line saying, I have read every Jodie Picco book as soon as it comes out, and I'm so looking forward to this novel. How wonderful to hear this interview. Thank you very much for that message. I hope we'll have some more. And please feel free to ask questions of your own as well, 0725671567, if you'd like to to send a WhatsApp. before we run out of time, the time is flying away from us. Jody, we haven't spoken about the significance of the title Mad Honey and the, the, the theme, the thread that runs through this book of the art of beekeeping. And as always, it's a book that I learned so much from about a topic I just didn't know anything about previously. What was it about bees and um, bee society, for lack of a better term, that made you want to thread this into the novel? So we all know that um, bees are, you know, that girls run the bee world, right? You know, there's a queen bee. And if you are a worker bee or a nurse bee or a forager bee or any bee that does any work in a hive, you are a female bee. There are male bees in a hive. They're called drones. Uh, They do nothing but basically deplete resources. And for one day in their lives, they actually fly out. They mate with the queen on her maiden voyage. Um, Maybe eight or 10 of them get to do it. And then the queen winds up coming home with all the eggs that she needs to lay eggs for the rest of her life. And that is important because that's a queen bee's job. All they do is create more bees. The fun thing about bees is that 
if a queen bee lays a fertilized egg, it will become one of those female bees. If she lays an unfertilized egg, it will become one of those male bees. However, there are some times when a queen isn't doing her job. She's too old, she's too sick. And at that point, the nurse bees go, we gotta do something. And they start feeding only royal jelly, which is a nutrient substance, to a particular cell somewhere on the edge of the honeycomb that contains an egg. And if you feed a larva only royal jelly, then a fertilized egg, which would have been a female bee, uh, becomes a queen bee with the hope that it will hatch, kill the old queen bee, take over the hive. But if you feed a drone, an unfertilized egg that is a drone larva, only royal jelly, it too will become a queen bee, which is pretty fascinating. Okay. Uh-huh. And that's and that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Loads and jars of royal jelly in the diet. I love it. I mean Royal Jelly. Mm. <laughs> Good for the skin as well, so I believe. <laughs> Jody, I'm all um, in all seriousness, I believe you actually almost apprenticed yourself as a beekeeper in, in preparing for this book. Uh, uh I, what was yeah, that like? I did. Um I actually, it was the only time I left my house during quarantine uh, for COVID because I was very frightened. I hadn't been vaccinated yet. We didn't have vaccines and I have asthma. And I used to go outside on uh, the weekend mm. and apprentice with a beekeeper from like six feet away with a mask on wow. underneath my beekeeping suit. Um, and mad honey, because you asked, uh, mad honey is a real thing. If you go to the Nepal region, um, bees that go to forage in mountain laurel and rhododendrons create something called mad honey, which tastes and looks just like regular honey, but is actually really something that will make you quite sick. Mm. You will vomit, you will get dizzy, you will have heart palpitations. In some cases, you can die. Um, wow. It used to be used for biological warfare in ancient Greece and ancient Persia, and there are records of this. Uh, they would leave the honey on the road as approaching soldiers came, knowing they were hungry and they'd eat it. And then they all got really sick wow. and the home army would kill them. Um, and I love that idea. I love the idea that something that looks sweet and harmless can actually be quite dangerous. Well, Trisha's just commenting on our WhatsApp that one of the things she loves about your books, Jody, is that the topic is always so well-researched. And she's saying, I look forward to reading this new one. Trish, uh, yeah, well, you're in for a lesson in beekeeping as well as a lot of deep thinking around the concept of the construction of identity. Before I let this go, one more thing to mention. Um, Jennifer, this is a book that also touches on the issue of domestic abuse. As Jody's already mentioned, one family in this book has fled a situation of abuse uh, many years before the events um, unfolding in this book. But it does raise the question of whether there is the sense of a kind of unholy inheritance of what is passed on from parent to child. Because we see a point where we have Olivia looking at her son in court on trial for murder. And despite everything that she knows Asher to be good and gentle and kind, she still entertains the thought, could my son have done this? Is he perhaps his father's child, despite everything I did to get him away from his father's influence? Now, I'm sure that neither of you wants readers to draw the conclusion that the cycle of abuse is inevitable. What are you hoping that they will contemplate when they put themselves in Olivia's shoes at that point? Well, I hope that, as I said before, people's hearts will be opened and that they will realize, and not just with the trans character, but every every character in this book is carrying a burden of some kind and wondering to what degree their past now defines them. What I hope readers will find in, uh, in the trans character is something very familiar that they will 
fall in love with this character and think, you know, that this person is much more like me than I ever dreamed. And um, before we out of time, is, is either of you by any chance a cellist yourself? There is a particularly beautiful piece of music that threads through this book. And I want to thank whichever one of you inserted it into the story and sent me in search of a recording of it on YouTube uh, because it's absolutely gorgeous. Just as a matter of interest, um, Jody, do you want to pick that one up? Is that something that was personally brought absolutely into the story? Absolutely not me. That is all Jenny. That's Jenny. Jenny is... Jenny is the classical music aficionado. She's the one who wait, goes which, wait, which piece of music are we talking about? Schubert's Arpeggioni Sonata. Um, that, 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 I don't want to say too much because it's a, so, so meaningful to one of the characters. And I just want to say thank you for allowing me to discover it um, and for, for popping it in there as a little gift, gift of a, a, almost like an Easter egg in the book. Uh, all right, with one eye on the clock, one more message from a listener I think we can squeeze in. Emma's saying, I just wanted to say, I love Jodie Picco. I have already messaged my book club to tell them there is a new book out that we have to get and uh, thank you so much for this interview Emma thank you very very much uh, for that message as well Jody, you've said in previous interviews and I think this will have to be the last question I'm afraid I've heard you say that this is not a book that you want readers to take something away from but one which you hope will leave them giving something do you want to elaborate for us yeah um you know we are always asked as authors what do you want readers to take away from this and I really don't want readers to take anything away. I want them to give. I want them to give. Um, I want them to give a damn. I want them to give a thought. I want them to give a little respect to people who might be different from them. Mm. Um, like Jenny has said, I just want them to open their minds and open their hearts a little bit and see what rushes in. It's an unputdownable read, and it's uh, I'm so delighted for everybody who has it still lying in wait for them. To both of you, Jennifer and Jody, thank you so much for joining us on the show and online this afternoon to share the story behind the book. And uh, I'm sure that it is going to have the impact that you are looking for of making people think deeply and take that moment to walk in another person's shoes in a way they haven't done before. So job well done, and thank you both so much for joining us today.